Hello from your favorite Grasslands PR team. This week we're back with another reason why these overlooked and underappreciated ecosystems are objectively the best biome. I'm Nicole. I'm Rachel. I'm Alan. Hi, Alan. <laughs> Hi, Alan. I didn't know I was part of the intro. Okay. You're here. Well, so you're, you're a part I am of it. here. You do. It's important to introduce you. And uh, it is my turn to share some things. And I'm kind of excited to come back with this episode because I've kind of had this in my pocket since I was researching carnivorous plants over a year mm. ago. And um, yeah, this is kind of the result of two converging related questions that I had while researching other things. And uh, yeah, I guess let's jump into it. So like I said, first encounter this topic, researching carnivorous plants associated with grasslands. And pitcher plant bogs are associated with a unique North American savanna that even John Muir referenced. So <laughs> I'm just laughing because I was <laughs> sure I was going to mispronounce his name. Muir. I'll just out myself. Yes, John mm -hmm. Muir. Let's all say it. <laughs> Muir. Muir. There we go. That made it weird. <laughs> now, now your turn, audience. Oh, wow, that was really good. Good job, guys. <laughs> In 1867, he wrote, quote, In pine barrens most of the day, low, level, sandy tracts, the pines wide apart, the sunny spaces between full of beautiful abounding grasses, liatris, long wand-like solidago, saw palmettos, etc., covering the ground in garden style. Here I sauntered in delightful freedom. Aww. Love a good saunter. Love yes. a good saunter. And there's a lot of different habitats and plant communities that all fall under the umbrella of pine barrens. For example, New Jersey has some unique pineland ecosystems. Um, they're called pygmy pine plains or dwarf plains, but it's not like a grassland at all. So the word plains is very misleading. I got excited for two seconds. And then it turns out instead of being covered with grasses, it is sort of like a white sand barrens that's like mostly devoid of trees higher than your knees. And the ground cover is like lichens and mosses and like what they call sub shrubs. So like a little tiny itty bitty shrubs. Huh. Okay. Um, yeah, so that wasn't cool. But there are a lot of pine barrens. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like grasslands. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, Do better, New Jersey. Yeah. Well, they, they have some pine savannas and grassland ecosystems okay. and stuff. And the pine barrens that Muir was describing weren't like pitch pine lowland or like hardwood swamps and that kind of other stuff. They were savannas. And that is a really important component of those ecosystems. And he specifically was talking about like abounding grasses and things like Liatris and Solidago, which is, of course, goldenrod. And so those are very much like grasslands plants. And um, they also, he also mentioned that they are like garden style, which is like so many savannas we've talked about and looked at. Like that's what a savanna is. It's like this nice like park-like garden-like place full of flowers and sparse trees and um, really, really cute stuff. Um, and it turns out that these are a hotspot for rare plants. And there's like only one U.S. region where you find those like saw palmettos and longleaf pines, it's in the south. So today, we're looking <laughs> at longleaf pine savannas in the American south. Cool. And how they're connected to the tall grass prairie here in Kansas. All right. Yeah. I love it. Um, I will go ahead and um, spoil that piece of it by just telling you that while I was just glimpsing into longleaf pine savannas to be like, is this something that like I would like to talk about? Um, I encountered a simple statement that was just like casually thrown into an article I was reading and they were like, that frequently burned longleaf pine savanna is considered by many to be the primary winter habitat of Henslow's sparrows. Oh. And that made me go, what? Whoa. Also considered? We don't know. I don't know. Anyway, so I had a lot of questions about that. <laughs> and uh, hmm. also, what the heck are longleaf pine savannas? So, yeah. Um, let's let's get into the, the longleaf pine savannas. The longleaf pine. <laughs> <laughs> it feels very weird to me to once again be talking about a tree because as a prairie biologist, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, yes. I, I've spent so long hating trees. I've 
recounted right. my ways now. Yes. And yes, grasslands do not have trees. That is one thing I've learned from this podcast. No, no um, hang on. <laughs> maybe, maybe you should go back and listen again. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, <laughs> we, we have talked about at least one other American savanna in particular. I know. Okay. Yeah. Um, this tree's scientific name I think is cute. It will be relevant. It's called Pinus palustris. I think oh. that's really cute. And um, What does it mean? Oh, I don't actually know. Oh. Polustrous? Pol- yeah, it's just that there later on there's like a group of people that hand out awards and they call it the illustrious polustrous and I think that's very cute. That is perfect. Yeah. Pal P A L Palustrous. Palustrous. Yeah, what does palustrine mean? That's a that's an adjective, right? Sure. Palustrine relates to a system of inland non-tidal wetlands characterized by the presence of trees, shrubs and emergent vegetation. Well, Palustrine. Huh. Okay. That's. I don't know why I said that like a spelling bee. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Which is really relevant because um, these guys really like wet habitats or like are really associated with wet habitats to the point where while I was researching some of these things, I was bumping into like bogs and wetlands and wet meadows so often that I was like, what, I- what even is a-, a wetland? What is a bog? You know, like, is it a wet grassland or is it a grassy wetland? I don't know the difference. And it really bothered me. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I, okay. When, cause you, you mentioned something like this to me with la- uh, the other day when you were researching this about like, what, where do you cut things off? How do you classify? How do you categorize these different things? Yeah. And I, I thought about, I used to have this wetlands textbook that would like go into excruciating detail. Like <laughs> what is a bog? What is a fin? What is a marsh? Mm-hmm. Like these words all seem interchangeable, but apparently not to wetland scientists. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so there has to be a reason why pitcher plant bogs are considered bogs, even though they are like very grassland dominant and are used by grassland species and stuff like that, you know? But it's like, but they're so similar. There's there's so much overlap in how animals are using the landscape and stuff. I don't know. It's just very interesting. Mm-hmm. It turns out that humans box things up that animals don't sometimes. Right. Hmm. Um, so this like this one tree was once one of the most abundant trees in the United States. Like period. Uh, here's a quote from a paper on restoring this ecosystem. Uh, quote, its realm, vast savannas shaped by thousands of years of frequent fires set by lightning and Native Americans was the description for this like broad, unquote, was the description for this broad landscape that these pine trees created. So these once vast savannas, because this is a savanna tree, kind of like the Baroque, it's adapted to fire and all of that stuff. Um, they once stretched across something like 90 million acres of the American South. Wow, okay. Which is truly incredible. And I say something like, because these are just estimations from the past, um, because of course they aren't there anymore. That quote that we heard before from John Muir, uh, he was looking at this longleaf pine wiregrass ecosystem type, and the one he was describing in 1867 was already disappearing from the landscape at that time when he was writing it. So I'll quote from this paper, at least a century before, European settlement had gradually transformed the natural landscape. Land was cleared for cotton and other crops. And it goes on to say commercial logging, which began in the early 1700s, also drove the steep decline. So very early on, these trees were getting like completely wiped out. So the tree was prized for like the naval industry and so many other uses. So people were just carving it down. Um, A forest botanist named Royland Harper in 1928 wrote that it had, quote, probably more uses than any other tree in North America, if not the whole world. (laughs) Wow. So very high (laughs) praise for this tree. It was just like a nice straight tree. The color was great. It was really useful for its resins and stuff. Everybody just freaking loved this tree. So of course, all of these bad mismanagement of resources, like happened with so many North American resources, whether it's animals or trees or other parts of the landscape, the colonizing groups that came in completely destroyed the landscape uh, by suppressing fire, by tillage farming, and of course, clear-cutting the wood. And so this led to a lot of other hardwood species like hickories and other types of pines that like 
don't like fire, but hey, mm-hmm. there's none. So let's just grow here like loblollies and things like that. They started to encroach on that habitat. And so basically where a natural landscape was allowed to continue existing, those places became dominated by, you know, really dense canopies. Very similar to the Burr Oak story again, because this is just kind of what happens when savannas aren't maintained mm-hmm. the way that they have been for thousands of years. Um, so it turned into a super dense canopy of hardwoods and like really messy understories of woody shrubs and vines, which is very much not a savanna and mm-hmm. um, ch- chokes out all of that native landscape. So yeah, again, we've heard the story before, bad land management disrupted the patterns of this entire 90 million acre landscape mm-hmm. that had previously been sustained by the indigenous caretakers for thousands of years. And so as a result of all of this, today, the longleaf pine savanna is reduced to 3% of its original range at about 2 million acres. And today, the longleaf pine is actually listed as an endangered species. Wow. The longleaf pine, really? Yeah, which wow. really surprised okay. me. Um, I mean, it's it's a commonly like it's a commonly cultivated like ornamental. Oh yeah, pine. Like, people use it. Yeah, we have pine like we have pine groves in our parks for that are longleaf pine, right? Um, it might not be this specific species this of longleaf species, pine. Like, I think there okay. are other types of longleaf pine, but Pinus palustris specifically is endangered. You can't. It is cultivated though. Uh, nursery websites usually say, "Oh, this." This tree is associated with fire risk, though, so don't plant it close to your house in, like, wildfire-prone areas. (laughs) Well, yeah, okay, right. (laughs) (laughs) Because it does, like, uh, like the bur oak, kind of promote fires spreading around by its pine needles and things like that. Yeah. You don't want a large flammable tree hanging over your house. No, not really, yeah. (laughs) Uh, It is also, like, it's, it's got a lot of press, though. So, like, it's the state tree of Alabama. I think it's, like, so praised in North Carolina, too, that... It's commonly mistaken to be also the state tree of North Carolina. I think their state tree is just like the pine, which isn't even a species. So that's where the confusion comes (laughs) from. The pine, yeah. (laughs) Right. Uh, Yeah. Um, So it is a really well-known species uh, and well-loved. It's just, you know, kind of in trouble. So where's like the remaining extent then? I'm trying to think yeah. if I've ever actually, have I been in a longleaf pine Yeah, savanna? the longleaf pine, it, it still stretches um, across uh, a lot of the South. Like it's from Louisiana. I'm not sure. If, I'm sure there's still stuff in Texas, but it probably extends from like the eastern side of Texas through the South and up into the Carolinas because it's really popular in North Carolina. Yes. Maintained okay. in like coastal areas in particular. Yes. That's where a lot of the public lands are that are maintained with this pine. Right. Gotcha. So I have been in this ecosystem. Oh! I have, I've been to the Croatan National Forest. Okay. Which is, uh, which is like near the outer banks of North Carolina. And oh. while I was there, uh, it had recently been burned. So the <laughs> understory was like gone and the pines were just, you know, they're fine. They, they were like fire scarred and stuff, but uh-huh. they got like the, you know, the platy bark and everything. They're fine. Yeah. So but it was like, it was kind of neat to like walk through a like recently burned, like forested grassland. So yeah, yeah. I, I do. Okay. I now have like a reference for what we're talking about. Oh, that's super nice. cool okay. that you've been there. I don't know that I've ever knowingly been in that ecosystem. Yeah. I don't know about Mm-mm. Nicole shaking her head. Not that I know of anyways. <laughs> yeah. Cool. You you were in an endangered ecosystem. Whoa. <laughs> there there are a lot of private lands that um have this ecosystem on it, and there's like been a huge push. I'll get into that a little bit later for like restoring it and stuff. But yeah, okay, cool. So like just a little bit of biology about this tree because I find that cool. Um, the needles can be up to 18 inches long, oh so they are very long leaved. I know that's wow, like yeah, that's, a foot okay. and a half. <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, it's huge leaves, and they're super super flammable. So it, the tree itself is resistant to fire, and the seeds depend on it to germinate. But then because of the way that the needles kind of like drape over everything in the ecosystem, and then the herbaceous layer underneath it is just full of so many grasses, sometimes sedges, and then a lot of herbaceous plants. It really promotes like this like very frequent and like fast moving fire and so combination of like being super flammable and resistant to fire and then like the type of litter it's creating in this ecosystem being just like it it gets engulfed so quickly Mm -hmm. um that's how this ecosystem is maintained and that's how the tree promotes that ecosystem and it kills off all of its competition it's woody competition (laughs) and then lets all this like new growth and new little baby pines sprout up it's you know pretty cool 
Also, I learned something because I'm not a tree person, right? I learned something about pines. I don't know if you're prepared for this. Baby pines. Have you seen a baby pine tree? <laughs> they go through a grass stage where they just look like a little bush, oh, like a little like a like bunch baby? grass. Yeah. Oh. Little baby babies. They, they literally look like a little bunch grass popping out of the ground. <laughs> it's really freaking cute. And apparently they're really palatable at that stage. So baby pine trees are like liable to get eaten up, um, hmm. especially by like feral hogs. I guess that's a problem okay. in the South. Okay. But uh, yeah. So is it just like their needles almost? Yeah, or is it's it like, like their really needles soft? just like bloop. Okay. And then uh, you can't see the gesture I made audience with my hands, but imagine me making like a popping motion out of the ground. Yes. It's like like a little troll doll popping up out of the Oh my God. <laughs> you know, like... Um, well, nice. and okay, like this freaking pine tree has 18 inch long needles. So like it yeah. is very right. like, you know, clumpy, long, grassy little, little baby. Hmm. Anyway, super cute. I like that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course, the plant diversity, which there is a huge diversity, um, comes from all of the plant life found on the forest floor since the dominant trees is one species. Um, and many of these species are rare or found nowhere else, including things like sedges and grasses, carnivorous plants like the Venus flytraps, um, multiple species, of course, and then like pitcher plants and, and all sorts of you know, American carnivorous plants, uh, and orchids and things like that. Uh, one estimate I read put the plant community's species richness of these savannas at up to 40 species per square yard. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And those communities can be really complex as a result, which is pretty cool. And there's like a lot of different ways these communities can look depending on like what the other species are. Um, so there's like general characteristics, but you know, are there like saw palmettos? Are there like wire grasses or are there fire grasses, which mm -hmm. is a thing apparently. Um, <laughs> yeah. So huge diversity. Also, they support over 200 bird species <laughs> and hundreds of other animals, including listed species like the red cockaded woodpecker. So that's why that bird is endangered is because of the destruction of this particular ecosystem, these hmm. savannas, um, and gopher tortoises and oh. things like that. Oh, cool. I love and gopher certain tortoises. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. They're so great. Um, yeah. So that's, that's what the longleaf pine ecosystem looks like. Oh, by the way, I sorry, I meant to ask this earlier. You guys know what a Henslow sparrow is, right? <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> I'll get into that later, but I just like wanted to like check that box. Uh -huh. <laughs> you, uh, would anybody like to to share what little information they they know about a Henslow sparrow? I don't have any fun facts about Henslow sparrows. None. I, I don't. I don't. Rachel. Oh, good. I have Rachel. plenty, but you know what? Look. I don't know sparrows as well as I should. That's okay. Most okay. people don't. They're just like really common. Are they you know, all the they're same? They're not common. Are they're they all the same kind of bird? Who knows? You're, <laughs> Hold you on. Say, <laughs> you're telling me they're not. I'm believing you. They, they're not. I'll no, tell, I Nicole, know, but <laughs> you, you surely have like at least something on Henslow sparrows, right? Why are you laughing? <laughs> I was just going to keep the joke going, but then I laughed. Um, oh, I was just going to say. Oh, there's more than one species of sparrow? <laughs> I will punch you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I honestly don't think I know that much about Henslow sparrows. Like, okay. I can like vaguely picture one in my head. I just want to... I am I keep defaulting to a Harris's sparrow, so it's like, no, that's not no. right. Um, that's a sparrow I know something about, yeah. but yeah. that's irrelevant here. So It, go it is currently irrelevant, but they're a really cool sparrow. Well, <laughs> I'm are. sure I'll, someday I'll talk sparrow, about yeah. it. It's on my, my long list. Yes, yes, not yes, the short yes. list, the long list. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Anyway. I feel like... They have brown on them. <laughs> they Maybe do. Maybe a little bit of yellow. Here, I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you something. They have. Uh, they're in a different genus now mm -hmm. than these other two sparrows, but they are closely related to grasshopper sparrows. Okay. And savanna sparrows. Okay. okay. So that should give you a little bit of an idea. I've talked about grasshopper sparrows in the podcast before. So like, talk. We're talking about like little like mousy, insecty little mm. grassland sparrows that have little splashes of yellow on them. Yeah, yes. for sure. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm glad you guys know nothing because that's fun. <laughs> no, this is why I'm glad <laughs> I'm on this podcast because every time I go outside with you guys, I learn like. <laughs> between three and 18 new things and so i just Same. feel like i feel like we're doing that here but in your living room yeah That's oh, great. it's perfect oh man okay oh i'm really excited about the harris sparrow what now you've got Hi. me all mixed up in the brain <laughs> now i'm really excited about the henslow sparrow piece of this because they're very fun little birds uh and i guess see 
I have this accidental bias in my brain where like I went to college in a grassland like uh specializing university Mm -hmm. surrounded by avian professors who like were closely studying these birds and acted like this was very common knowledge for everybody to know so that's that's my kansas bias making me assume that everybody knows these things um (laughs) and also not picturing places like louisiana mattering to henslow sparrows more on that later though Uh, okay, so just like a little bit on this habitat, like we obviously know what restoring the habitats looks like. So like talking about like the future and the restoration of these habitats, obviously it's like thinning out all those freaking trees that encroached, regular fire management, treating encroaching species with herbicides sometimes because they're so persistent and it's hard to get rid of them. Um, and so many people are actually doing this work right now. It's kind of like inspiring. Okay, for example, I found this really cute North Carolina Longleaf Coalition. I say cute like they're not like an actual like big important organization doing a lot of work. They they are like a big important organization. I'm sorry if I'm infantilizing them, but they have an <laughs> honor roll for longleaf landowners. Aww. And it's really sweet. Like they they like literally have an honor roll of all of the really great private landowners that are doing longleaf work and they have a little map and like pictures of the families on their property and stuff with their like plaque. It's so cool. <laughs> and they also are the ones that give out this award called the illustrious palustris. <laughs> That's so good. Um, which it just recognizes outstanding contributions to the state's longleaf pine ecosystems. Uh, for example, this year's winner uh, is Jesse Wimberly. Way to go, Jesse. Illustrious palustris. Uh, but like, I mean, this guy did like decades of work restoring longleaf pines like on his own property and like contributing to the community and like getting his neighbors to do it and like started a freaking prescribed burn association creating peer support and trained to support longleaf restoration on private property across the state like what (laughs) like there's so much cool stuff so anyway sure the point being there are a lot of initiatives out there doing a lot of work on longleaf habitats and i think that's partly because the range or what's left of it stretches so wide and it's a really uh yeah endearing sort of ecosystems of course a lot of the support is coming from uh forest initiatives and wetlands initiatives even though the longleaf pine is itself a savanna species uh, again there's just so much overlap in those interests and um what ecosystems are i find that fascinating um but there's a lot of initiatives for both private and public lands so that's pretty neat that is very cool and very encouraging yeah, yeah. And i mean i think yeah like it- I don't know if you've if you've ever been like, I mean, there are certainly yeah, definitely stretches of the South where you drive through North Carolina. Certainly, if you're going near the coast, where it is like a huge part of the character of that place. So mm. it is really cool that it, it's like, like that people are like really like especially like landowners. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of interests seem to be really tuned into yeah cons- conserving that. It's very cool. Yeah, absolutely. Like even things like whether you should be raking your pine needles on your property because it's damaging roots and also removing the leaf litter and hopefully you're burning your property, et cetera. So, right. Yeah. It's just ah, very cool. I love yeah. it. Especially with such an ecosystem that's so small, like individual landowners can make a big difference in that. So For yeah. Sure. yeah, yeah, absolutely. For sure. Can't all be public lands. <laughs> so yeah. you might be, you maybe you're going to talk about this, but like, okay, like this is a if, if it's a pine dominant savanna though, mm-hmm. pine is very fast growing, right? Yeah. So wouldn't this be able to like wouldn't it be able to rebound somewhat quickly if it was managed properly? Yeah, like, that may be part of what's happening and why it's been a, a pretty big success. I think the biggest problem from from what I've read with you know all these. Uh, more recent actually studies on the best practices for managing or restoring the ecosystems mm-hmm. is just that like once a lot of those other woody plants get in there it's right. so hard and it's so laborious to cut them back like it's a lot sure. of manual labor to make it an environment that these pines can even grow in again right, right. if that's the problem um so yeah for landscapes where you know there's like a little bit of encroachment and the pines are still there that's a totally different story from trying to like cut back all these oak hickory forests that grew up instead and the environment isn't even like suitable to begin prescribed burnings yet because like the pines can't even grow there and there's no like understory left uh, or very little of it left in in a lot of places so that's a lot of the problem i think and so that's why i think um herbicides are mentioned a lot in the literature because for for a lot of very persistent woody plant removal like you you have to 
take it beyond just mechanical removal. You've yeah. got to take right. matters into, you know, more dire hands and use like chemical maintenance on that. So, mm. yeah. Well, cool. That's a bummer, but yeah. also good. But also good. People yeah. are doing it. And uh, you can get really cool awards for being good, <laughs> at least in North Carolina, probably in other places. If not, Get on it, other states. Louisiana, yeah. I need you to put out illustrious, illustrious awards. Hell yeah. Come on, this is so good. I would love to be on an honor roll, any kind. <laughs> but I would love to be, specifically for this, that would be great. Yes. Yeah. Why isn't there like a like a Tallgrass Prairie honor roll or something? Oh, there could be. There could, there could be. There could be a Best Buy I'm honor roll <laughs> for habitat restoration. Wow. Okay. Um, this brings me to my other slash converging question, which is um, Henslow's sparrows depend on them? And also, I guess I need to explain to you why that shocks and confuses me, mm-hmm. because you don't know anything about Henslow sparrows. So let me <laughs> fill you in on that. This is going to be fun because uh, I am fully exposing my Kansas bias in that I didn't realize the diversity of Henslow sparrows grasslands habitats. Mm-hmm. I was just like, oh, they're a tall grass prairie specialist. That's the end of the story. Not, not the story. <laughs> Or the end of it, but not even the story. Um, So here's what's important about Henslow sparrows. They are, number one, a grassland obligate bird with pretty unique needs and behaviors. Like I said before, they're really similar to grasshopper sparrows and savanna sparrows, but they are in a different genus now. Those two birds are like really broad and can be found across the entire United States. They're also long distance migrants. So they'll get down into Mexico. We were banding savanna sparrows up in the Seward Peninsula of Alaska. Like mm-hmm. they'll they'll be like across in grasslands across like most of the United States, these two species. And in fact, the only place you don't really see savanna sparrows is Kansas outside of migration because like we're one of the very few like we're in a little bubble of where they just pass through us for some reason um so these are really really broad species that live in tons of grasslands but are also grasslands obligates henslow's sparrows are not that way they are pretty selective and they're pretty unique so here's the thing about them they are mousy secretive little grassland birds (laughs) <laughs> you just it. you just described a savannah sparrow <laughs> that makes harvest mouse style nests in tall grasses Aww. so they'll build nests like sometimes on the ground they're like little like dome covered nests sometimes like over a foot above the ground in little like bald nests like out and they're they're so hard to find mm-hmm. the nests because they're just like i don't know very concealed um it also turns out that they are soggy little guys like they love hanging out in wet places i guess is what i'm trying to <laughs> alan is rubbing his face okay. um <laughs> they, they really they really like <laughs> wet places yeah like like little like wet marshes and little wet meadows and little soggy grasslands, but they're a grassland obligate. So this is where again my idea of what a wetland and a grassland is gets blurred to high hell because mm-hmm. they are a grassland obligate bird. They like eat grassland. Sorry, they eat grass seeds mostly and arthropods. They need grasses to nest in, but they live in bogs. So you know <laughs> you take that for what yeah. it is. Um, and uh. Of note, they are a sink species in the state of Kansas, so they are a species in need of conservation. They were listed in 1987, but they still have no recovery plan. <laughs> it's okay. It's only uh-huh. uh, almost 40 years ago. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. so that's great. Um, according to KWPT, their most stable Kansas population is at Kansa Prairie. Otherwise, True. they are pretty, like, populations of them actually known to nest are pretty spread apart in kansas like there's more accounts of solitary males singing than there are accounts of them breeding and it's hard to say if that's because it's hard to observe them or because they're not there but probably just that they're so picky that they aren't in a lot of kansas tall grass prairies Hmm. um I have a quote about their song because I think it's really cute. And I think it really (laughs) illustrates how secretive and shy these birds are because like usually birds are so easy to find because their songs make them so easy to find Mm -hmm. and they're really boisterous about their singing. So this is an account from 1881 um, by a guy named C.M. Jones who was describing the Henslow Sparrows song in an account from Northern Connecticut. Quote, the musical performance. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, nope. Okay. 
<laughs> you don't want to <laughs> don't want to imitate cm jones's voice no okay. i don't, I don't want to offend the man or woman um probably a man uh the musical performance of this bird has very little to commend it <laughs> wow when the muse inspires his breast he mounts to the top of a weed or some other object that raises him just above the grass there he sits demurely until the spirit moves when he suddenly throws up his head and with an appearance of much effort jerks out his monosyllabic <laughs> apparently with great satisfaction <laughs> then having relieved himself he drops his head and waits patiently for his little cup to fill again oh my god somehow i cannot watch him while thus engaged without feeling a feeling of pity for a creature so constituted Dang. that he can be satisfied with such a performance. Wow. A roast from 140 <laughs> years ago from C.M. Jones. <laughs> totally uncalled for. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it makes me so happy. It's so, it's so mean. <laughs> it is, yeah, but you know, it's fine. So yeah, they, they just kind of go, it's kind of like if a grasshopper sparrow started its song and then like stopped immediately after like a syllable or two. Right, okay. So it's very yeah, yeah. insecty. It doesn't even sound like a bird. You barely yeah, yeah. notice the bird singing it. They are so hard to detect. <laughs> Secretive. Secretive. Soggy. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit. Okay. Sad. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Oh no. Uh, so, <laughs> hang on. <laughs> we don't need to add to the no, rest. That's, we'll so- that's how we'll always remember them now. <laughs> yes. Secretive, um, soggy, sad. Yep. Um, so, the other thing we know uh, that's, I think, important to understand about Hensel sparrows is that their ideal habitat, from what we can understand in their breeding grounds, has basically two needs. Number one, a well developed litter layer which is why they are the talk of grassland bird ecology all over the freaking place. Because when you're talking about burn regimes and things like that, maybe you're managing in a way that's fine for meadowlarks or grasshopper sparrows, but a henslow sparrow needs a layer of grass litter from previous seasons in order to even have the cover they need to make their nests and live their secretive little lifestyles. So they need a well-developed leaf litter layer, which means often having a prescribed burn system that's too frequent mm-hmm. is going to drive them out of their habitat, even if it's otherwise suitable habitat. So like annual burns. Too much for too them. Too much. Yeah, yeah. They need some kind of leaf litter from a previous season. <laughs> the other thing that we know they need from their breeding season requirements is that they do not like trees, which is two reasons why I was very shocked <laughs> that yeah. they were in Louisiana yeah, in yeah. pine savannas yeah. of all places. So, um, well-developed litter and no trees. Um, so then I got like, when I first read this about Henslow sparrows, I got very Holden Caulfield about it where I was like, where do the Henslow sparrows go in the winter? I don't know what happens to them in the winter. I've never considered this before. I guess I always assumed they just like went to Mexico or other Southern places. Yeah. Did not even fully consider how many grasslands are in the south and how many other grassland birds are using those ecosystems. But anyway, they just go to the south. They go to those Atlantic and Gulf Coast forests. They go to Texas through Florida and up into North Carolina, and that's their winter range. So that's where they breed. They are short-distance migrants. They go from, like, Connecticut, like, up in this little area, Kansas, Connecticut-y sort of areas, down into the south. And that's it. Hmm. Henslow sparrows are secretive on their overwintering grounds, too. According to Birds of the World, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, um, they are secretive on the overwintering grounds and little is known about habitat selection. Um, They do say winter habitats generally are thought to be similar to breeding habitats in the sense that they be dominated by dense ground cover. So they're so sneaky and secretive that it's even... Uh, in, in breeding season, it's even worse on wintering grounds. Um, and we're slowly learning pieces of information about how they use and select habitats in winter. Uh, but there are like, basically one thing people can agree on for sure is that they have to be dominated by dense ground cover and they must be regularly burned. So those two things have to work in conjunction. So, okay, the like the understory with like that's very species rich and all those grasses and has lots of like pine needle litter. Mm-hmm. 
is great for the wintertime for them. Yeah, apparently it is. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And they are found in a lot of different grassland types in the winter. So so they are found in prairies, marshes, bogs. Actually, I have a list. <laughs> um, because this is where I learned the word pocassin. Uh, mm, yes, yes. <laughs> but yeah, I know, right? Um, so uh, their wintering habits, habitats... It, include atlantic and gulf wetlands they're usually referring sorry descriptions of their wintering habitat frequently refer to a preference for open boggy pine flats grassy pine flats or just low moist areas low moist areas (laughs) little soggy boys do henslow sparrows want us talking about them this much Probably not, to if be honest. If they're secretive while breeding, mm-hmm. sing very briefly. They're secretive when they're wintering. Mm-hmm. Do they want to be put in the spotlight like Definitely this? Definitely not, but okay. it, I think it's important that we do anyway. Yeah, that's fair. You know, uh, they don't have to, they don't know we're talking about them. That's fair. <laughs> they have yeah. no idea. So is it really harming them to talk about them? I would argue no. Absolutely okay. not. Um, okay. okay. So it's good to talk behind people's backs. No, <laughs> birds. We you know, listen, we're not sparrow. having a gossip conversation. <laughs> uh, let's, we'll try. I'll work hard to get a Henslow sparrow on. Um, we'll see if he Thank can. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if his little cup great. can fill enough to say a syllable of oh. words. <laughs> no. Okay, I, I had it like folded under because I didn't think I needed to go into this much detail. But since you asked, sure. So populations along the Atlantic coast will inhabit coastal marshes, swamps, dry fields, salt marshes, low wet meadows, upland weedy hayfields, pastures, and in North Carolina, clear-cut pocassins, which is a wetland type. I don't really know what else to say about pocassins. I didn't really (laughs) dive that deep into them, but I found the name interesting in Mm -hmm. that I had never heard it before. Okay, but doesn't that seem like a huge range of habitats for it something is. that's very selective? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's it's kind of crazy to me that they use that many. Yeah, that they use that many habitats. Right. Mm-hmm. That's weird. And it's also kind of interesting because, and again, I didn't think I like needed to go in this, into this much detail, but it is fascinating to me. Their their range has really shifted over time historically too, in that like their historic habitats were pretty restricted, and then when we began to cut things down and make hay fields they really expanded because they were like oh shit hay fields that's my cup of tea right, yeah love that sure. stuff makes sense and um now the hay fields are being cut down uh to make row crops and other really intensely managed forage crops like alfalfa and stuff like that mm-hmm. um, that's now been contributing to their population decline hmm. in more recent years but yeah so they have a huge a huge range of habitat types that they'll live in do yes. You, do you think that it is possible that they do breed in more diverse habitats than we think they do just because they're so secretive? Or are we pretty confident on like their breeding range and the kinds of habitats? We, we are pretty confident in their breeding range, mm-hmm. I think, right now. Um, I think we're probably not detecting them all of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think uh I think it's more likely we're detecting Henslow sparrows accurately than like other species because like bird people are, you know, kind of crazy. But they are. but I, I think <laughs> I I do think um that we we know enough about their habits to know that like the one thing all of these landscapes have in common is that they are grasslands and mm-hmm. that they have dense litter. And as long as those things are met, the bird seems to be okay right. with it. I think there's also a component of like the scale of the, like if it's a little blip on the map, they're not super happy about it. So it okay. has to be like some mm-hmm. degree of scale to the habitat right. that allows them to really thrive. So as long as those things are covered, they're pretty happy. And it sounds like it would be like a lot of space for them to live. <laughs> But those landscapes are not, like, incredibly common. Especially in the Atlantic, uh, their breeding range in the Atlantic has shrunk to the point where some people were talking about it like it was strictly historic, Mm -hmm. that they bred on the Atlantic coastal plains. So uh, I'm not even sure that Hmm. they currently breed there anymore. They're kind of restricted to, like, the Great Lakes area over into Kansas in those grasslands. Interesting. Yeah. And the way that their range increases or doesn't is also another freaking interesting piece of the puzzle. Um, um, 
that I'll mention later. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so with all of these winter preferences, they've been observed in these places, but we're still piecing together like how they pick them and how they're using them and that sort of thing. So what we do know is uh, in 2010, a study that was done across the entire state of Louisiana and all of their grassland types with Henslow sparrows was really trying to identify the answer to these questions that we're discussing. And uh, according to their results, uh, of all of the prairies and savannas and like wet marshes they had there, uh, the longleaf pine savannas are the most important grasslands for wintering Henslow sparrows in Louisiana. And they also found that overwintering habitat is probably selected based on more like very regionally specific vegetation features like that dense ground cover. So while this savanna ecosystem is the most important feature for them, if it's like not up to their specifications, they're not going to go there basically. Interesting. Um, I think they found that uh, they were like, 1.5 times more abundant there than in some of the like surrounding similar areas further south and more like of the wet uh, grassland types (laughs) they were uh 13 times more abundant in the pine savanna than in those types oh wow so their abundance really was different between those places even though they were present okay Interesting. Yeah. And it's kind of funny reading these studies. I, I like scanned through several of them trying to get like more concrete information, but some of them, they're just so like local that it's really hard to make broad sweeping generalizations about what this bird is even doing. But they'd be like, wow, we were shocked to find 400 of these things in this one field. And it's like, <laughs> oh my God, like if we hadn't like banded them, maybe we wouldn't have seen them. Like, yeah. that's true. Yeah. Um, they're pretty gregarious in those regions. Yeah, uh, so this Louisiana study across the entire state found that their winter habitats need fire, but also not too frequent. And they found that um, it was pretty consistent across the board that at about five years after fire, any habitat that wasn't burned that they liked became completely unsuitable to them, and they would not go back. Okay. Probably due to woody encroachment is what they said. Only five years post-fire. Yes. Hmm. Which, so that's like another interesting piece, right? Because I said like they need dense ground cover and they also need fire management. And that's why, because it only takes like five years for it to become too woody for them. And they're like, you know, screw this place. I have to go somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, how much of, how much of those like hardwood forests that are there now, like when was the last time there was a fire there at all? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that so interesting? Um, And again, uh, it's an important reservoir for these uh, birds. Yeah, not important at all. Um, just a little note that I found fun. They don't like little blue stem seeds. They oh. hate them. They almost never ate them. <laughs> really? Yeah. Fascinating. That one grass. Yeah, they don't like them. <laughs> well, that's too bad. I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, they, but they also found, uh, like in some seed preference uh, studies, that um, one of the other big predictors for abundance of Henslow sparrows was seed density over everything else, which directly relates to the quality of the grassland mm-hmm. and the fire management again, because the seeds they preferred were a lot of these grasses that love fires and they sprout up really well after the first year or two after fire. Mm-hmm. And uh, even alongside things like sedges that had that same growth pattern, they were like, nah, we really just want these grass seeds. And so hmm. that habitat maintenance, um, which promotes the seed density of those specific grasses they like, is also also super important to them yeah crazy yeah it's like kind of unfortunate that they need such a specific fire regime but it's also kind of nice because then we know like what to do to hopefully get them back yeah for <laughs> sure and it's also like um I, I don't know as far as like fire management in kansas you know mm-hmm. people have promoted patch burn grazing for ages now but it's a nice signal that like you don't have to be running fires through your landscape every single year to be doing fire management either. And that it's probably better if you don't. Mm -hmm. And that there are species out there that will appreciate you not doing that because, you know, historically that's what the landscape would look like is, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of variation and those sorts of things. So, yeah. So Henslow sparrows, weird little soggy grassland birds. (laughs) Yeah. And they really depend on, Longleaf pine savannas more than we realized before. And they also like Kansas. That's the story today. <laughs> I feel like I didn't summarize it in a very eloquent way. Litter. 
And litter. Comes they down like, to litter. They like yeah. litter. Yes. Which they, is... To be little mousy birds, they have to have a lot of things to mouse around in. Yeah. No, for sure. Yeah, that's <laughs> little soggy, wet, mousy birds. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Zip. Um, I do, <laughs> do want to end on one other note, though, which I thought was really interesting with this, like, talk of, like, oh, like, how this one specific bird is using this one specific landscape. and But, you know, more broadly, like, how landscapes are changing and how climate change is affecting that, no mm-hmm. matter how much we're trying to restore things, right? I came across something that was mentioned so casually that shocked me because I had never heard this before. And maybe my head is just in a rock, not under it, just in it. Um, <laughs> you know, like I fully just uh-huh. like had a malfunction in the graphics. Uh, just clipped right in there. there. Yep. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Grassland birds are not changing their range the same as other birds in response to climate change. In that they are not moving moving northward. Like as a group, grassland birds are the only birds surveyed. I have a quote. Analysis of Christmas bird count data found in 2010 uh, that grassland birds were the only groups of birds failing to shift north during the past 40 years in response to warmer winters. Wow. And this study was um, trying to see if Henslow sparrows could teach us anything about that. The, the short answer is no. Uh, we don't really know what's happening here, mm-hmm. which is fascinating to me. Um, and this uh, paper that was studying Henslow sparrows mentioned, it, it is another quote here, uh, it is unknown whether this lack of a systemic northward shift is due to a lack of available grassland habitat in northerly regions or whether grassland birds are simply less sensitive to climate variability compared to other bird species. Mm. What they found based on movement of birds, and uh, they did basically a climate change vulnerability assessment for Henslow's sparrows, was that distributional shifts due to climate change shouldn't be expected to be poleward for grassland birds, and um, that range shifts for grassland birds are geographically complex. Um, they they did find that there were predictable, not necessarily predictable, but like mark marked uh, distributional shifts in response to certain things like precipitation for Henslow sparrows. I think they decided that probably we are looking at a contraction in their range based on a couple specific variables that they found. But the bigger question for me here is just the fact that we don't really know how they're changing and whether it's because there's like some sort of resilience here or just a lack of suitable habitat that's like restricting them from shifting in ways that maybe they should. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the predictions for why this is a thing, because uh, we obviously there's something happening here, included the idea that like, well, grasslands are just very open and they don't really have as much of a buffer for animals as like forests would. So maybe they're just like more resilient to changes in weather and stuff. Um, but yeah, we don't really know. I don't really have anything more like sage or like profound to say about that, except that I'm always amazed at how many questions I end up asking about the world, especially when trying to answer questions about (laughs) something where it seems like there should be answers. Like, for example, what are Henslow sparrows doing in the winter? And like, which habitats do they like? Mm -hmm. Which ones are important? And which ones are just where they happen to be bopping about in, you know? And like, we're just now beginning to understand that, but we also have no idea if they're going to get wiped out by climate change because they just can't move north for some reason to escape yeah. variables in temperature or if they're just extra cool and aren't susceptible to similar factors that other birds well, are. Yeah. But every other group of birds except grassland birds is shifting it's northward. Shifting northward. I mean, it does make sense. I mean, okay, so since like, I mean, grasslands in essence are like disturbance mediated ecosystems like yeah. so like change and upheaval is like a part of that and so if you're mm-hmm. a grasslands obligate you think you would be acclimated or at least would respond in a more complex way than just like abandoning yeah. uh, a site or you know so uh, yeah i mean it's interesting maybe there is like uh 
the teeniest tiniest of silver linings there um, as opposed to like oh they're not moving so when the grasslands are crispy they're just going (laughs) to die (laughs) you know like so but maybe it's like oh no they're they're going to like you know uh yeah they'll adapt they'll yeah they'll they'll acclimate they'll figure it out so yeah 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 i think that really summarized you put into words the sort of like roller coaster of like not knowing how to respond to this that I was experiencing where it's like this this could be really encouraging news. It also could be devastating and we don't really <laughs> know the answer. And so it's hard to know which is which. But, you know, I am encouraged by the points you make mm-hmm. in that they are indeed birds, animals, birds and animals. They are animals. Birds are <laughs> they- animals. <laughs> Yeah, they do thrive on disturbance. Yeah. So maybe maybe it's not hitting them quite as hard as all the other ways grasslands have been hit. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially like something like a Henslow Sparrow is very picky, but is willing to apparently go yes. anywhere to yes. find specifically what it wants. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to be like, well, it's not here, so guess I'll die. It's going <laughs> to yeah, be like, no, like, I'm going to... I'm going gonna, I'm to search it out. Yeah. It might be wetter than this other place I was in in Kansas. Yes. Uh-huh. It might be a hayfield now, right. but by golly, it's got these like two things I need, I'm so I'm happy. I'm going to find what I'm looking for. Yes. Yes. Ah, yes. oh, oh, that... Man, you turned this around. You made it real exciting and positive. Thank you. I knew one of you guys would do that. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, um, that's just one little tiny story from the Longleaf Pine Savannah and why it turns out they're pretty neat. Beautiful. They are neat. The end. The end, guys. We did it. We stopped the recording outro, but also, do you think you'll do any more stories around this ecosystem you know now that i realize <laughs> that red cockaded woodpeckers are a savannah bird uh-huh. <laughs> mm. i i don't know honestly i i do have a couple of other things picked out um that might be interesting to talk about like maybe more specific stuff on some carnivorous plants even though i t- kind of did a little mini dive on them at one point mm-hmm. um there there were a lot of things oh wait did you mean the climate change issue no. Oh, okay. <laughs> she meant the Jersey Devil, I think. I've, yes. Oh. No, oh, no, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, there are other pine savannas in the United States mm-hmm. yeah. that aren't longleaf pine savannas. So uh, maybe. I don't know. Now that I realize how big savannas are in the U.S., I'm kind yeah. of obsessed a little bit. So I wouldn't write it off. Mm-hmm. That's fair. That's fair. I'm trying to figure out if you're asking me because you really want to do one. No, I was just oh, curious. Okay. <laughs> I feel like there's a wealth of things to talk about all of the time, so I'm not going to make specific promises, but know that I love this topic and that I have like three different things I picked out as offshoots (laughs) that I thought were off topic for Uh this episode. Uh Perfect. (laughs) Love it. Yeah. Can't Uh wait. Yes. Well, thank you, Rachel, for sharing. And thanks for listening. (laughs) So I'm sorry. Something about the way you said that was really funny. Well... Thank you, Rachel, for sharing. I'm just trying to be nice to you, okay? <laughs> oh, okay. Thanks for listening. The Best Biome is produced through our nonprofit Grassland Groupies, dedicated to inspiring the conservation of grasslands. In the show notes, you can find our website, phone number, and social media accounts. Text, call, or tweet your suggestions, fan mail, or hate mail. If you think Rachel should never ever talk about another Savannah again, let us know. No, <laughs> no, don't take this from me. <laughs> If you enjoyed the show and want to support us, tell your friends about us and leave us a review on Podchaser, Apple Podcasts, or even Spotify. We couldn't do this without your support. See you again very soon.